Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're in the third year of the triennial reading, so we're at the end, ending third of every Torah portion. Um, and often when we're in the second year, we do the beginning part of the second year, but sometimes, you know, there's so much going on in a Parsha that we don't finish the second year. Um, and so what I'd like to do is go back to the end of the second year triennial. I know you all care very much that these are the divisions, but I want to go back to the um, end of the second triennial because we um, don't... W- I want to tie that into where we are um, in the third third, because let me just tell you, nothing happens in the third third. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. So let's look at chapter, I want to look at chapter 35. So here we are uh, at the end of the second triennial, and we are there. Where are we? What's happening? What's going on? We have just finished um, the story of the rape of Dina. So the the story of the uh, well, we're not sure if it's a rape. Actually, um, we have the uh, Dina lying with Shechem, the prince of the town with the same name. Uh, her brothers, because her honor has been um, tarnished, her brothers trick the entire city into saying, "Yes, we'll intermarry with you, but you have to become circumcised." So all the men become circumcised, and uh, while they are recovering from that uh, piece of minor surgery, the brothers plunder the town, and they kill Shechem, and they take their wives and their children as captive. And now Yaakov says to Shimon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me, making me odious among the inhabitants of the land. The Canaanites and the Perizzites, my men are few, so that if they unite and and attack me, I and my house will be destroyed. So we've got a Yaakov here who's very afraid that what his sons have done is put him and his family in a very vulnerable position. Because even though, you know, the people that they went up against are dead or captive, um, one could imagine that those people had treaties with other people in the area. And so that means now they have gone against uh, people with a treaty with Shechem. And so kind of the whole neighborhood is going to look at them, if nothing else, then as, you know, brigands and bullies and people to be avoided. And how do you do business with people like that? That's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is that they've essentially declared war. Uh, on folks in the neighborhood, um, they remain defiant and say, you know, but our sister can't be treated like a whore because then what happens to our reputation anyway? So, th- so this is where we leave. We're coming to the end of the second triennial reading, and so in chapter thirty-five, Yaakov, God says to Yaakov, "Notice it's Elohim who's talking." which means we have here an e-source. So uh, I just finished uh, reading about all of these texts and about Yaakov, because we're going to see something that is a little curious. And I was reading an article about it. And, um, and it says that there are very different traditions about Yaakov. 
And that Yaakov in the E tradition, Yaakov is the ancestor of the E source. That the Elohist, which remember is a northern source, it's northern Israel. That E source is put together with the J source when uh, Assyria attacks Israel, the northern kingdom, and refugees come to the south. And they bring this E text with them. And then that has to be that is supplemented to the J text. So in the E text, Yaakov, who his name is changed to, remember what his name is changed to? Oh, yeah, Israel. So Yaakov, whose name is Israel, um, becomes Israel. That is the progenitor of the northern kingdom of Israel. That Jacob is very brave and very crafty and deals with Lavan and is not afraid of anybody. Jay wants to downplay Yaakov because Avraham is the important ancestor in the South. So Avraham is more important and Yaakov needs to be downplayed the namesake of the Northern Kingdom. So we're talking about the Southern author who is Jay, the Yaoist. All right. I'm saying all of that so that we can try to look at some of these places where we see a seam in these texts and why we seem to have two very different Jacobs um, going on. So God speaks to Yaakov, and in here it's it's Elohim, which means this is the E source, the northern source, says, arise, kum, ale Beit El, go to Beit El and remain there. And build an altar to the God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esav. So here we also have this story about, remember, we talked about cult sites and we talked about Amatseva, which is a, you know, uh, an indication that this is an ancient uh, Israelite cult site. And that's exactly what's happening here is the instruction to Yaakov. It's a northern source. It's an e-text that says, go to Bethel. And build there essentially a shrine. And so this is how we get one of the shrines uh, in the north. We get Beit El. So Yaakov said to his household and to all who were with him. And now I want us to look, to think about last week's text. Yaakov says to his household and to all who were with him, rid yourselves of the alien gods in your midst. Purify yourselves and change your clothes. What we might have here, if we look at what we read last week with the trafim, um, and that that was a normal thing for them to have, that we saw lots of indications of like Michal, David's wife had trafim uh, and, and uses them. So uh, Rivka uh, approaches an oracle, you know, so there's lots of, there's lots of indication that our foremothers continued their Mesopotamian practices Um what we might have here is a conversion story that Yaakov has a vision. His name is changed to Yisrael after his wrestling match. And now he says, now we're going to be an, a, an exclusively Yahwist worshiping family. So get rid of everything else and purify yourselves and change your clothes. So, so clearly some kind of ceremony Come, let us go up to Beit El, and I will build an altar there to the God who answered me when I was in distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So this is an acknowledgement that that 
he's going to build a Mizbeach. He's going to build uh, an altar to whom? To El. Remember El, the Esource, the Elohist. El is the God, the chief God of the Canaanites. Um, and so referring to God as El, clearly an Esource. Then Yaakov gave, they gave to Yaakov all the alien gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. So this must be some kind of ceremonial, right, garb, these rings, because Yaakov buries them under the terebinth that was near Shechem. And notice what the word for um, for terebinth is, and that is uh, Elah. So let's go to Beit El, and I will build an altar there. God is called El, um, right? And they gave all the alien gods they had and the rings that were in their ears. So again, this must be some kind of ritual paraphernalia. And Yaakov buries them under the terebinth that was near Shechem. What is the terebinth called? Elah. So again, El is a, a name for God. Elah is the feminine of a name for God. This is uh, the terebinth, probably a tree sacred at one point to the goddess. Uh, so Elah, meaning feminine of the divine, uh, and uh, an out, a uh, uh, big terebinth would have been uh, at one point like an Asherah. It would have been a, a symbol of the goddess, then becomes not a symbol of the goddess as we have the patriarchal Yaoist tradition taking over. But it, it seems to be that all of these things were fine with Yaakov until now. These alien gods, the rings in their ears that must be some kind of, you know, ritual, whatever. Like, it seems like it's fine until now that something's going on where it seems like it's a conversion story where Yaakov now wants everybody in his clan to get rid of all that stuff and, uh, and worship El. And as they set out, a terror from God fell on the cities around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Yaakov. So this is a miraculous intervention by God so that all the neighbors who we just talked about being really upset with um, Yaakov's sons for murdering the entire town of Shechem, all the men of Shechem, um, that, that they miraculously get out of there safely. And so Yaakov arrives at Luz, now, the author wants to say, Asher Be'eretz Kana'an He Beit El, that this in the land of Kana'an, but don't be confused, it's actually Beit El. He and all the people who were with him, there he built an author, uh, an author, and he built an altar and named the site El Beit El, for it was there that God had revealed God's self to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Vatamat Dvora. And Devora, Rebecca's nurse, dies. And she's buried under the oak below Beit El. And so it was named Alon Bachut. So this, this tree of weeping. So Devora is clearly at one point in our tradition important enough to be named in these texts. So what was she originally to Rivka? Just a nursemaid? Probably not. Probably she was her tutor. So if you think about, you know, wealthy women, even think of the literature we know, right, from Europe or wherever, when you have a, a wealthy young woman, she is given a governess 
And the governess is wise and schooled in the ways that the family wants this child raised uh, and then keeps watch over that child like as the child grows up. In the ancient world, that person would have stayed with the girl, child who grows into a woman. And so Rivka's uh, governess is still alive and, again, had such stature in our tradition at one point that we have her name and we have the notation of her death. So this is certainly not just a, a nursemaid, right? This is not an, uh, somebody who just is paid to like watch if the kid doesn't fall off a cliff. <laughs> this is obviously someone very important in Rivka's life. And that she's given a burial at a ceremonial place. Like this is a, this is a very important burial. And so I'm sad we've lost the Devora tradition um, that we know, we don't know any more about that uh, line of stories, Devora and Rivka, but clearly there were some. Vayera Elohim El Yaakov. So now God is appearing to Yaakov Ode again. As he's coming from Padan Aram, and God blesses him. Who is this source? Who called that place that Yaakov went Padan Aram? The P source. This is the priestly source. So we just had an E text. Now we have a P text. And why am I going to point that out? Why do we care? lo Elohim. So E. This is an e-source calling God Elohim. The Elohist is writing this source. You whose name is Yaakov, lo yikaresh shimcha od Yaakov. Your name will not be called anymore Yaakov. Kiim Yisrael, but your name will be Israel. Yeshmecha will be your name. Vayikra et shemo Yisrael, and he called his name Israel. All right, why? Am I, why am I seizing on this text? Any ideas? Why do I care about this text? What's odd about this? Anybody? (laughs) Um, I guess, uh, yeah, we already had the story about the the name change. Why mention it again? That's exactly right. Uh, where, Where did we have that? At the end of the wrestling match. That's the whole point of that story is that's how he gets the name Yisrael, the one who wrestles with El. So he's called Yisrael, right? So Kisara, because you, which I didn't realize until I read it this time, Sarah. I'm like, oh, (laughs) I didn't put that together ever before in my whole life. Sarah, because you sard, you wrestled with beings divine and human, vatuchal, and you proved able. So you will be called Yisrael. So what the heck is this? What the heck is this doing here? We had it in 32 already. And so obviously, if you subscribe to the documentary hypothesis, E does not know that story. I mean, sorry, P. The priestly author does not have a story where Yaakov wrestles with something and his name gets changed to Yisrael. So part of the question always is, why would you leave a seam this evident in the text? And so this is where um, it's actually a theory that it's, it's new to me. It's not a new theory. It's new to me. 
I don't know why um, it, it hasn't been talked about more in biblical exegetical circles, but there's there's the documentary hypothesis, which is all these texts are different documents that get put together. Everyone buys that. We all know that. And we all know their letters, J-E-P-D-H. Um, but what I've not really heard a lot about is something called the supplementary hypothesis. And that is that there's an original text and then other things get supplemented on top of that original text. And if you're really supplementing a text that went before, not sticking a bunch of texts together, then you can't really monkey with the holiness and the inviolability of the original text. That makes a lot of sense to me in terms of why a seam would be here. Because you, if you take E as the earliest source, then you add J onto E, then you add P onto EJ, P can't monkey with the text that's there about a wrestling match because it's already canonized. But that is not a P text. So P also has to add P's text and P's version of how Jacob got this name because that is a sacred text to the priestly authors, people, or at least to the priestly agenda. Does that make sense? So there's already a story that's really important to the Northern tradition. Now you're trying to put the Northern tradition with the Southern tradition. The priestly authors even, you know, is dealing with that mixture. And now the priestly author has their own agenda. They can't take out the wrestling story because the Northern folks are really wedded to that version of them having gotten their name from that incident. But P does not have that tradition. So P's tradition is that this was directly an act of God as a blessing to Yaakov as he builds, as he builds a shrine. That is important to P that Jacob has directly uh, an intervention from God P does not want any of this business of an angel or something divine, sort of something, and Yaakov prevails. That makes P very nervous. P doesn't want anything to do with that. P has the great God in heaven directly blessing Yaakov and changing his name to Yisrael. Okay. So now we have another problem. (laughs) So the other problem is, does he get called just Yisrael from now on? No, he continues to be called throughout the Joseph narrative, which is coming next. He continues throughout the Joseph narrative to be called both Yisrael and Yaakov. So in both places, in E with the wrestling match and here, what does it say? Lo od Yaakov. Your name won't be called anymore Yaakov, but Israel. Well, then how come he keeps being called Yaakov, (laughs) right? So in both of those versions, you won't be called Jacob anymore. You'll be called Israel. And in all of our texts, he continues to be called both Yaakov and Israel. What is up with that? So that is a very interesting question. Um, But so, all right, my Hebrew speakers, my Hebrew readers, what do you think? How do you think the rabbis get out of this conundrum? Because they see this too. They're not dumb. They know this. 
So how do they get out of this? I'm going to give you a hint. And they, they look at the word owed. Also. <laughs> Who said that? I guess I did. <laughs> Gold star to Linda Scheibel. Uh-huh. Owed can mean also. And so the rabbis say, don't think, don't read here. Your name won't be called anymore, Yaakov. But it will also be Yaakov. And it will also be Israel. Ode can, can also mean in, in line of that translation of also, it can mean additionally, right? Ode is another. And so you're getting Ode shame. You're getting another name, not a rename. So our rabbis are very clever. That's how they deal with a text that is obviously from two different sources. And obviously, like, it doesn't get taken seriously later by the Joseph narrative. And so any problem, they have to figure out a solution. They're very crafty. And they use this word, ode, uh, as a way to, to deal with that and to get out of that. But clearly, there's a tradition where the name Yaakov's changed to Yisrael as a direct bracha, as a direct blessing from God. And God says to him, God continues the blessing here in this text. I am El Shaddai, be fertile and increase a nation, yay, says our translation, an assembly of nations shall descend from you, kings shall issue from your loins, the land that I assign to Avraham and Yitzchak, I assign to you and to your offspring to come, will I assign the land. What is this reminiscent of this blessing? The blessing to Avraham. This is the P source connecting Yaakov back to Abraham, back to the hero of the J, the Southern tradition. The priestly author is also Southern, right? The temple in Judah, in Jerusalem, in the South. And so the P source wants to be very clear that the name Yisrael is given by God to a descendant of Abraham, the J patriarch the Southern patriarch and is, and this is El Shaddai who's doing this. This is the same usage that we see also in, of course, the Moses narrative, right? Okay. So, uh, so I, this is the, this is P making sure that we know that Yaakov is tied to Avraham and Yaakov is inheriting the bracha, the same bracha that was given to Abraham. And in that sense is the legitimate patriarch because of Abraham. Not because God forbid he wrestled with some kind of semi-divine whatever. That is bordering on scary heresy stuff. And so um, it is because he is a descendant of Abraham and God chooses him, God's self, and uh, and changes his name to Yisrael, and, and he inherits the same bracha that the patriarch Abraham did. Barry? Yeah, here's what I, what I know, is that the northern tradition uh, was a lot more about, you know, angels and demons and all the uh, spirits, uh, these magical creatures, and uh, and were about uh, sort some sort of a destiny, uh, uh, a divine plan, while the Southerners were, uh, at least in the temple, uh, 
viewed, you know, if you did something, you get punished in this world and they don't, didn't believe in the afterlife. So we are basically talking about two really distinct philosophies, um, uh, theological philosophies. Yes, for sure. Two, two different understandings of the divine and its place in the world and how it interacts with human beings. Um, yes. E, and it's not an accident that your two shrines in the North, you know, um, have a bull, a golden bull in front of each one of them, right? That, that is not accidental. Like you just said, like lots of symbol, symbolology, is that a word? Symbology, (laughs) Um, you know, from, you know, uh, kind of semi-divine figures, magic, you know, like bulls that will, you ward and warn and be, you know, protectors of this sacred cult site. So all of that very much part of the E tradition. Dana? So, you know, when you mentioned El Shaddai, I went to this sheet from Rabbi Rubin's class on the 70 names of God, just to kind of connect it. And then it got me to think, 70 names of God. I wonder if those names are associated some with the Northern tribes, some with the Southern tribes. I mean, yes, yes, absolutely. Not all of them can divide up Northern and Southern um, because many of them are post-biblical. There ain't 70 names in the Bible for God, right? So, So the ones that are rabbinic are don't have anything to do with North or South because they're they're post-exilic, right? The exiles are, the destruction and exiles already happened. Um, so you might connect it to, you know, Babylon, you know, and some of the things that they're exposed to in Babylon, but it doesn't become, it's not geographic anymore. The earliest names for God are geographic in that they're either Northern or Southern or later, right? So looking at other texts that are later, but but not yet rabbinic. And then are some of them that are earlier connected to the various uh, authors, the documentary authors? Yes. So that's how we get the name for the e-source is that the e-source uses Elohim. Oh, yeah. Right. So that's the Elohist. Then the J-source is the Yahwist because in Latin, Y is a J. It's, we should call it the Y-source, <laughs> right? You know, so um, the Yahwist calls God Yahweh and that's the J-source. Yeah, so those early names are definitely indicative of who's writing those texts, for sure. And then we get then we get some that are older, we get some that are attached to the north or the south. Then we get, like I said, once we get chariot literature, you know, we get some early, you know, mysticism and all that stuff, you have other names that are used there. Um scribal, right? Ezra and Nehemiah, like so all these uh, later pieces. Okay. So so what does it mean that P names Yisrael without this story of wrestling? What do we do then? That was one of the questions I was left with was, okay, so if we have the tradition that, that he gets his name from this wrestling match, okay, but if you don't have a wrestling match, what does this name mean? I want to hear your rabbinic interpretations. I was just brought up like Israel is struggles with God. And that's what Judaism is. Right. Because we are without a religion if I don't struggle with God. We're very good at taking that E story and having it be meaningful for us. If you're, if you're writing the story about God changing 
Yaakov's name to Israel and you don't have a wrestling match, what does that name change mean? Why change it? So part of it is, okay, well, you have to explain how the, how we have half the population being from a, you know, a people that they call themselves Israel. <laughs> okay. I get that. Emelinda. I, I can't help but feel like, you know, this is a franchise with an existing fan base that got taken over by a new writer and they have to retcon the origin story of a very popular main character in a way that will satisfy both halves of the strongly held feelings about it fan base. Um, and clearly the story about wrestling with God was very popular. And if if writing this in that God wrestler is your name is a giving of permission it is okay to wrestle with God. It is okay. We're all on board with that, that sometimes God is really hard and we're going to keep on fighting that fight. That's who we are. And it's okay. Um, so, so what I hear you saying is that the, the priestly source knows that that wrestling business is super important to a huge fan base. And so doesn't explain the name, but just leaves it there as I know this is important to y'all who are from the North and y'all's whole wrestling thing. And so I'm going to affirm that that's who we still understand ourselves to be and that it's kosher, right? This idea of wrestling with the divine is kosher. And so I'm going to signal that by telling my own version of God naming Yaakov Yisrael. All right. The only thing I want to say about, about that is that that's suggesting that P understands Yisrael to mean that, I, right? So this is what I'm curious about. Does, does P think that's what that name's about? I don't know. If P doesn't have that story, I don't know. Then what does it mean? Maybe it doesn't mean wrestling God. What does it mean? Sar can be chief, prince. So big shot. So could it be the opposite of wrestling God that we are... We're a chief of God. We're an appointee of God to be an official of the divine. We so take that story as the meaning of the name Yisrael that we forget. Maybe that's not, that's only true for E, for the Northerners. What do the Southerners think that name means? Right? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, I'm, I'm kind of curious about, okay, so if it's not about wrestling, because that story's not there for the South. What is Yisrael for the South? And I don't think I've ever really thought about that before. Y'all are like, yeah, there's a reason for that. Uh, but <laughs> Barry? Uh, yeah, I'm thinking about, you know, the names we have for uh, uh, the characters in the Bible. We have Melchizedek, which means my king is Tzedek, like Jupiter, the god of Tzedek, of, uh, of justice. And then we have Avimelech, which means my father is Molech, the the uh, the god Molech uh, um, from uh, the Canaanite god. So I, 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 along these lines, I would say Yisrael means that uh, one who puts El as his Sar. I buy it. I buy it. So one who makes El, because remember, that's the name of the chief Canaanite god. And what Barry's lifting up is how many names in the Bible have as their origin one who serves Molech, one who serve you know and so meaning those Canaanite god names would have filtered into early Israel because early Israel originates in Canaan let's not forget 
So you're taking, and to use Emma Linda's language, you're taking a fan base that uses the name L for God. You have you have to satisfy your fans, right? You have some brand loyalty here going on. So you got to give them L, right? So if it's not the one who wrestles L, what Barry's saying, I think, um, is you know the one who makes L, it's Sal, it's Chief. Yeah, I buy that. I buy that entirely. That it's and really- especially I believe that L was the god of the Shemites, which they, they just eliminated. So uh, they would meet, need to make some penance for this crime so that others would leave them alone. Lovely. Beautiful. Beautiful. Or Sar'el, like we, we beat them up. We're, we're, okay. we, we won over L. Ta-da. So you don't want to mess with us. <laughs> right? Yeah, but then he builds uh, he builds this altar. Then I wouldn't say, you know, to worship they, that they, god. They, so they leave, they leave the area because it's like, uh, yeah, Smart. our god kicks your god's butt is exactly what that might could mean. Um, but it's just interesting that we are so wedded to the wrestling story that we don't even consider some other ways that that name might be meaningful and helpful and useful and informative about who we call ourselves. It, it may not always have been that that's what we called ourselves was God wrestlers. Some of us did, but some of us may have said, you know, I put God as the top authority in my life. And I line up everything behind that. God is my soul, right? Or we kicked El's butt. Interesting. What if that's who we are? We kicked the Canaanite pagans butts. That's how we identify ourselves. We supplanted Yaakov, right? We supplanted y'all's pagan religion. I'm not so proud of that interpretation of the name, right? But could be. Look at Bruce laughing. Okay. So in in conclusion um, to that business is, um, is this idea of naming, right? And that naming is super important. Um, and that it, it really is an expression of, uh, on some level for our ancestors, it, w- it was an expression of either what one really wanted for someone or an affirmation that that's what this person is about. Like that's kind of what they're inheriting, whether they want it or not, right? Like that, but it is, it is cosmic for them. Like it is super important, this business of naming. And so we're going to see right after the thing that we just read, what happens next is they set out from Bethel. So they don't stay at Bethel. God said, get up and go to Bethel. They don't stay there. But when they were still some distance short of Ephrat, Rachel was in childbirth and she had very hard labor. When her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, have no fear for it is another boy for you. But she breathed her last. According to the Hebrew, um, her soul left because she died. And she called his name Ben-Oni, the son of my suffering. But his father called him Binyamin, the son of my right hand. So Rachel names Binyamin knowing that birthing him is going to kill her. And, or, or at least, you know, result in very serious, you know, very dire situation that she might recover from because she's still alive to name him, but 
clearly she knows that that this is bad um, and names him that like the, you, that's who you are in the world is the one who is the son that's causing my agony and ultimately my death. But Yaakov can't live with that. Yaakov, it seems, cannot live with calling this child who kills his beloved Rachel in coming into the world. Yaakov can't stand it. He can't live with it. And so he changes the son's name to Bin Yamin, the son of my right, the son of my right hand. Vatamat Rachel, and Rachel dies and is buried on the way to Ephrat. He uh, Beit Lachem. So the the author is telling us this is now Beit Lechem. And now, again, back to our last week's reading. And what does he erect on her grave? A matseva. Right? So some way to indicate that this is a very special place, possibly, you know, even religiously so. Uh, th- this is the love of his life. This this is the love of Yaakov's life. And she's now gone. And so he erects a matseva, a monument of some kind. Um, on her grave, and it is there to this day. So with the writing of our final author, our final redactor, it was still a, a place of, one might imagine, even pilgrimage, right, uh, in that day. And, of course, we know, Barry, if you want to talk a little bit about it, but, you know, these places still are supercharged. Uh, and, you know, and even if, like, According to tradition, which means we have no idea you know, where, where any of this is, but according to tradition, um, it, it loads it in such ways that, it, that to, today it's a really, really, really fraught uh, thing. Barry, do you want to talk a little bit about, about that at all? Yeah, the Palestinians uh, say it's uh, the, the site that is called Kever Achel, the tomb of Rachel, is really a tomb of, of uh, uh, a local leader, a sheik of theirs. So again, we have a zero-sum game where we can't all enjoy this place. <laughs> it's either the burial site of Rachel uh, or our sheik. Right. And, um, and, and not only can we not both enjoy it, but only one team gets to control access to it. And so you have to have Israeli soldiers with guns you know, stationed around some of these places. It's just so, it's interesting and sad, but also interesting and powerful that these, these kinds of places continue to have such a pull and, and such charge around them that we have Israeli soldiers stationed whose job it is, is to protect access, right, to sites that are no longer um, surrounded by, you know, by just Israelites. So, it, you know, it's human nature. It's here that he sets up a matzeva because it's such an important spot to him. We get Devorah's burial place mentioned because it's such an important spot, you know, to the early uh, authors that there was a tradition around where she's buried. And it continues to be a very strong pull for us, this, this, um, connection, this attachment to the place where, and we, it's not like we, not like we believe there's even a historical Rachel, right? She's a pedimento of lots of different matriarchal whatever. And yet we're still fighting over 
right? What's traditionally her, uh, her burial site. And we can uh-huh. yeah. I mean, do the, do the commentators uh, make much comment about the fact that the God, God's changing of Jacob's name is immediately followed by Jacob changing Benjamin's name? It just struck me as, as, as you read it that it was a name change, although he wasn't alive yet, I guess. They don't. I mean, I haven't read anything that connects them. Um, but we know the naming of children, right? That, you know, like when, um, as they're having all their children, you know, th- how Rachel and what's her chops, Leah, um, name their kids, right, is important. You know, wh- how, what Leah names her children mm-hmm. is important. Um, so you know, it seems to be something about the, the, the power of the mother to name. And I think one of the things that's indicated here is, the beginning of patriarchy truly taking over is right. Is that the mother's, the mother's name doesn't hold the patriarch changes the name. The mother gives her son, right? So a clear power shift from women naming their children to, to the patriarch naming the child and changing the name of the child. So in that sense, yeah, like, the big boss is the one who gets to change the name. And in that sense, right, there's a connection between God changing Yaakov's name and Yaakov changing Benjamin's name. It's almost as, an, oh, and speaking of name changes, <laughs> right. that's what happened right after Benjamin was born. Right, right. Um, but, you know, you can, you can imagine going through life with the name cause of my suffering. <laughs> which sometimes our children fully deserve. But don't feel all. guilty about it, but, to, but have no guilt. <laughs> right. Cause it's of a, all of my suffering. Yeah. It's interesting, it's interesting that, at least in our time, the naming of children, uh, in many cases, is dictated by style and not by content. Yeah. Names that become very stylish. And uh, sometimes people name their children with things that, you wonder why they even named their kids that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Rainbow and puppies. Yeah. Like the moon unit comes child. To mind, right? Right. Um, and we, we know some, we know some Christian people who named their daughter, uh, daughter Zadie. Zadie? Zadie. Yeah. Without even knowing what it was. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. Grandpa, you name your baby grandpa. Okay. That's got some interesting stuff going on with it. Um, Elon Musk, right? Yeah, thanks for that, Lee. Um, right? Yeah, I, I'm, you know, I have met with, you know, kids for their bar mitzvah named River, and it's just kind of like, okay, it's beautiful, but it's also like really people. For us, a name is, quote, just a name, but, but name actually in biblical times had a whole other thing. Sure. As well as God's name. It's more about essence. uh, The place I see it right now in, in my work is people who are converting and, and have to choose a Hebrew name. They have to choose a Jewish name. And then it really is an act of meaning, right? About, I mean, like with, with my partner, it wasn't such a big deal. Her name is Judith. (laughs) So her Hebrew name was kind of, (laughs) <laughs> kind of there, Yehudit. Um, but she could have chosen a different one, 
but it doesn't make a lot of sense. But anyway, so be, for, but for people who are converting or people who want an adult bat mitzvah and were never given a Hebrew name, and now they're going to be called to Torah, they have to choose a Hebrew name. And it is a really beautiful process to be a part of, is to be a part of someone choosing a name. Because I don't know anyone who hasn't given it thought, you know, when they choose one. Um, and to be on the inside of that process is a really sacred sacred experience. And, um, and then whenever they are called by that name, I have to think that it's a little different than those of us who just kind of got a name, you know, like, um, it's still our name. So it's still special to us. Like, I like my name, but but I didn't pick it. (laughs) You know, and it doesn't have any profound meaning. It was short enough to go with Bernstein, you know, which is why they gave it to me. But, um, and and because when my dad told my mom I'd been born once in love with Amy was playing on the radio. So um, so then we attach meaning to <laughs> right to these names that are really like Bert said, just about style. But, you know, Amy was a popular name. Uh, but anyway, so um, so choosing choosing a Jewish name is, is a really important thing. And then walking with um, ECC parents, you know, I do this this presentation to ECC parents about choosing a name for their child if they don't have one yet for their child. And um and, and really listening to their stories about as they think through what Jewish name they want to give their their child. Um, it's, you know, or people who are having a baby and, and are, you know, thinking about Jewish names. And it's just it's it really is truly a, a powerful thing. This this idea of of naming and of uh, of choosing names, of assigning names. Um, it's it's a powerful thing when you get to be part of it and when you get to do it particularly if you get to do it for yourself. Um, it's a really, it's a really great thing. Anything else? Any final? Amy, I, uh, this is Dave Rosenthal. Uh, question on naming. Um, we notice that people in, in the observant community tend to name after older, longer, kind of more obscure biblical names. Um, and uh, at the same time, we, we have a tradition of naming after our deceased relatives. Um, and how do we sort of blend that um, where we have names of deceased relatives that, that we want to honor? And I know sometimes we, we just go with the first um, initial of their name, but like, can, can you talk to us a little bit about um, the, the importance of using a strong biblical name uh, juxtaposed with um, honoring our, our deceased relatives uh, also tied in with trying to come up with a name that's going to sort of fit with your last name. and <laughs> Right. So, yeah, so there's lots of layers. And for some communities, one of those layers is trumps the other ones. Um, but like in the Sephardic tradition, they name for living relatives. Oh. And so we kind of assume in our Ashkenazic centric, you know, Judaism that, that that's what we do, but it's not. So in, in Sephardic tradition, you name for a living relative and in Ashkenaz, uh, it's the opposite that if you name for someone who's alive, it's as if you're wishing them dead. Um, so there's a taboo. Not only don't we do it, it's a taboo. Like you, you can't do it. Um, and so those are, those are two different traditions. Um, if you have 12 children, you can imagine like, Bubby and Zadie are gone and the first grandchildren got named for them or the seventh grandchildren got named for them. There's only so many people to name for. Right. Um, and so if you're going to look at other names, then you want to give your child a name from the tradition. 
like from from our sacred kind of storehouse, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. of names as a way to give them a Jewish name. So you, you don't want to give them a name like Amy because that's American, mm-hmm. right? You, you want to identify your child uh, with a Jewish name. So the Bible is a good place to go um, for that. Um, and, and then if you want to honor a deceased relative, then right. So in Ashkenaz, the tradition is to honor a deceased relative with their name, but some of those names, like you don't want to do that to a kid. So you just keep the first initial, right? Like, like in my case, I felt really strongly. I needed to name for my father of blessed memory who never lived to see my daughter. Mm-hmm. And his name was Howard. It's like, what do you do with that for a girl? And with the name Bernstein, what do you do with that? Like, I felt really wedded to the idea of naming for him, naming her for him. Yeah. But I also felt like Hannah Bernstein Ew, like, or, and there were like three Hannahs that, you know, at the time in Duluth that she was growing up with Hermione, (laughs) Hadassah, like, you know, there's just not a lot to do with an H for a girl other than Hannah. And so um, I was really stuck. I was really agonizing about it, which is weird. Like why it just has such pull for us. You know, like you said, like we, we really do have these traditions and I felt really strongly about it. And, what is my daughter's name? Y'all are all scratching your head now, aren't you? Going, uh, how does that work? Her name is Eliana, right? So I decided, okay, I can't do anything with an H that isn't cruel to this child. Um, and so um, I named her after what her name would mean. Like, okay, what does naming for my father mean? All he wanted was a grandchild from me. That's all he wanted. And he didn't live to see that. But he really wanted that. Um, and so I named her My God Answered. Oh, oh. Um, you know, that that, that prayer from, of my father's was answered. And that's what she's called, is the answer to that prayer. Um, oh. And so it's for my father, but, right, but very right. tangentially. And his name in Hebrew was Yechezkel, which is Ezekiel. Hmm. So I've got the E. But it's a stretch. Not going to lie. Got it. So that's kind of one just mini example of how all those things kind of intertwine and and play into the decisions people make about, about naming. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.